You are listening to Standing Firm, a call in an age of decay, deconstruction, and desolation to be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Welcome back to Standing Firm, a podcast of Holy Trinity Reformed Church. I am Pastor James Brown, Jr., and today we are going to be discussing hypocrisy, and specifically the essence of hypocrisy from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord declares, in the words of Jesus, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There is an application or a practice associated with this passage that I believe that most, if not an overwhelming majority, erroneously force their presuppositions and presumptions into the text and completely annul the whole teaching of this passage. It's not as if these presumptions are directly being taught, but are rather implied and assumed by those who are hearing. For I will admit that it's not so much the teaching of any passage that is problematic among conservative people today, but what is assumed and applied in many, if not most, cases. Now, in conservative realms, it's not simply bad theology, but the fluffy, soft, and smooth sermonettes, where a lot of bad assumptions and applications are deduced. But isn't this typically our problem today, across the board? We are not serious about anything, and never think seriously about anything. We do not consider anything except what is on the surface because we live these superficial Christian lives that have no meaning, no practice, and no commitment. It's basically a bunch of nothing, and we refuse to be challenged because we are committed to one thing, nothing. Nothing has become the modern Christian, conservative Christian creed. Now, this is different from so-called liberal Christianity's commitment to heretical doctrines and practices, which is no Christianity at all, by the way. But in our circles, and I'm talking about Christian circles, and, you know, I, I really don't know how to define what those circles are anymore. But regardless, it is a commitment to unfaithfulness or a commitment to nothing. There have been a combination of factors that have produced the perfect storm that we are going through today. However, there is one thing in which we can be certain, and that is at the center of decline, decay, and de uh, deconstruction is rebellion. This is the main issue that is plaguing conservative Christianity. We are committed to the shallow and superficial so that we do not have to do anything. And 
it's not germane to any set of demographics or denominational backgrounds or secondary or indifferent theological uh, commitments or practices. We are a people in rebellion. And so we have come up with ways for decades to validate our rebellion. This rebellion is across the board, even among those who think they are active and practicing Christians simply because they are not sodomites or abortionists. The truth of the matter is that we are not faithful in most areas, and as a result, this skews our perception of what it means to be engaged as Christians in this world. As a result of being rebellious, it also means that we are not team players, which only confounds our problems. And not being team players means we are unhelpful in building and advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. For example, one such secondary eschatological commitment of mine is post-millennialism. However, I would have to say that I'm at odds with a substantial amount of modern post-millennial persuasions. But when you start considering everything in total, this is true with modern all-millennial and pre-millennial thinking and practice. The Westminster Confession of Faith says in paragraph 2 of chapter 25, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation, end of quote. The visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the pillar and ground of the truth. Repentance, revival, and reformation will not come through civil government or familial means. The visible institution of the church is the only agency that can change the world. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for the advancement of the church to go into the whole world to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to do all things Christ has commanded us in his word. And that includes going into the world in relation to nations, civil governments, and families, and every other structure of society. By this, and I'm talking about the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the church, by this civil governments will be reformed. By this families will be reformed. By this, meaning the work of the church, the world will be turned upside down, but only through this means that God has instituted for the evangelization of the world. The only power here on earth that can topple the Antichrist kingdoms of this world in any meaningful way is the visible church. And yet, that is the lowest thing on our list. Therefore, we refuse to submit ourselves to the church and give our lives to its service. Regardless of any individual's activity level, the church in America has been left desolate. 
The work is not being done because when it comes to the work of the church, we are committed to nothing. Most likely, even among those who do something or think they're doing something, it will be independent of the church. We are like the church in Laodicea who said, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And Jesus says that they do not know that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And that's us today. This arrogance in thinking of ourselves to be something when we are nothing makes us think we know it all. We somehow think we are effective and helpful with our contentious, quarrelsome, and independent spirit. And so today, Christians sit on their couch, stuffing their faces, moaning and complaining, but never doing anything other than bellyaching about the faults of others, thinking, of course, that we are faultless. This is schismatic, and it is unhelpful. In our text, Jesus speaks of those who attempt to get a splinter out of, the, out of their brother's eye while they have a plank or a log in their own eye. And in our arrogance, we say that this is not us. Jesus is not speaking to us because while we may have a splinter in our eye, we will if we're pressed into a corner, admit that, yeah, maybe there's something wrong with us. But ultimately, it's everyone else who has the plank in their eye. But is that actually the point that Jesus is making? Is the analogy meant to communicate to us that we are equipped to get planks or logs out of the eyes of others if we only have splinters in our eyes? Is Jesus saying it is acceptable to have splinters in your eyes? Is Jesus simply saying that as long as your sin is less than in degree to that of your brother, that you are fit to correct their errors? Is Jesus saying that having, having a splinter in your eye and you are attempting to remove a plank in someone else's eye that you're not a hypocrite? Yet, that's how we look at it. It's only those who have greater sins than I who are the hypocrites. Now, I bring this up because it is definitional to hypocrisy and also because it keeps us from seeing that we are the modern day hypocrites, that we are the modern day Pharisees. Just like we have failed to grasp that we are the apostasy in this age, so too are we the hypocrites of this age. For decades, many have preached against a few, uh, preached against and about a future apostasy when actually we were the, the apostasy. We are the Pharisees, and yet we wonder why we are under Roman rule. We wonder why we are in bondage. We wonder why we are under the curses. We wonder why we are losing our children. We wonder, wonder why sinners are not being converted. We belittle the rebellious Israelites who are murmuring and complaining in the wilderness. We condemn them for their sins and their schisms. 
We look down our self-righteous noses at them for their unbelief and weakness in not going in and taking possession of the promised land. And here we are, rebellious and weak, refusing to go take this land for Christ. We would do well to hear the words found in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, where Solomon declares, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open square. She cries out in the chief concourses at the openings of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called, and you refused, I have stretched out my hand, and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel, and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm, your desolation comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. End of quote. Let's look at our text a little closer in Matthew chapter 7. First of all, we do find in our text that there are indeed degrees of sin. For example, in Matthew 18 and verse 6, Jesus said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. It seems to me like Jesus views this sin in the highest of degrees. Jesus told Pilate in John chapter 19, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus spoke of a sin that was of a greater degree than the sin of Sodom. Something that maybe we should hear today. Jesus said to the 70 that he sent out into every city and place where he was about to go to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, he said, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the day, in that day, for Sodom than for that city. There was a sin greater than Pilate's, a sin worse than Sodom's, 
In both instances, Jesus is condemning those who sinned against light and knowledge as the greater sin. As Jesus corrects the false assumptions and applications of the law in his earthly ministry, some falsely declare that Jesus did not make a distinction of degrees when it comes to sin. Many will try to deny that the Bible makes a distinction of degrees when it comes to sin. Many attempts to put Jesus at odds with the law and its categories, distinctions, and degrees have been made, but Jesus was not abrogating the law, nor was he leveling the degrees of sin. Jesus was no socialist. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Not only is Jesus upholding the validity of the law, but he's proclaiming a higher degree of righteousness that was needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus did not come to destroy or abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Yes, to fulfill it perfectly in the keeping of it in thought, word, and deed, but also in the enforcing of it in accordance to the law. In other words, to enforce righteousness and justice in a lawful or just manner. So it is true that if you have a greater sin and you are attempting to condemn a lesser sin, that truly is hypocrisy. Matthew Henry, commenting on our text, wrote, It is common for those who are most sinful themselves and least sensible of it to be most forward and free in judging and censoring others. The Pharisees, who were the most haughty in justifying themselves, were the most scornful in condemning others. They were severe upon Christ's disciples for eating with unwashed hands. Which was, a, which was scarcely a moat, while they encouraged men in a contempt of their parents, which was a beam. Pride and uncharitableness are commonly beams in the eyes of those that pretend to be critical and nice in their censures of others. Nay, many are guilty of that secret, which they have the face to punish in others when it is discovered. But men's being so severe upon the faults of others while they are indulgent of their own is a mark of hypocrisy, end of quote. But still yet, is that the point that Jesus is making here in Matthew 7? Jesus, who said lusting is adultery and that hatred is murder, was he simply trying to say that as long as you keep your sins of adultery and murder to a lesser degree, then you are morally fit for the correction of others? Surely we have not reached the place where we think that the plank 
is adultery and the splinter is pornography or any other greater lesser comparison. This passage is definitional to hypocrisy and to define it in a way where only greater sins are hypocritical is to miss the scope of the intent. Although higher degrees of sin are indeed worse, Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, the Holy One of Israel, was not minimizing sin, which is how we try to interpret this passage. But that is not the point of the passage. Its point is not to minimize sin. What we can say is that one application of this passage is that judging others for lesser sins when we have greater sins is hypocritical. Matthew Henry, again commenting on Matthew 7, wrote, There are degrees in sin. Some sins are comparatively but as motes, but others as beams. Some as a gnat, others as a camel. Not that there is any sin little, for there is no little God to sin against. If it be a mote or splinter, for so it might better be read, it is in the eye. If a gnat, it is in the throat, both painful and perilous, and we cannot be easy or well until they are got out. End of quote. John Calvin also commented, in his commentary here on Matthew 7 by writing that Jesus expressly touches upon a fault, which is usually found in hypocrites. While they are too quick-sighted in discerning the faults of others and employ not only severe but intentionally exaggerated language in describing them, they throw their own sins behind their back or are so ingenuous in finding apologies for them, that they wish to be held excusable even in very gross offenses. Christ, therefore, reproves both evils, the excessive sagacity which arises from a defect of charity when we sift too closely the faults of brethren and the indulgence by which we defend and cherish our own sins. End of quote. Well, it is true that Jesus is condemning those hypocrites who are quick to despise the lesser sins of others while indulging their greater sins. Jesus was not excusing our lesser sins, whether they are actually lesser or just lesser in our own estimation. Secondly, notice that Jesus is talking about the measure we use in unjust judgment. He is not talking about the measure God uses or the measuring stick of the law. He is speaking about hypocritical standards of judgment. We must also remember that Jesus is speaking to his disciples in a cultural context that is dominated by the Pharisees and their thinking. He is talking about the way they make judgments and the measure they use to judge. In Matthew chapter 23, the Bible says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, 
But do not according to their works, for they say and do not do. They say, but they don't do. Which, by the way, is a higher degree of sin because it is sinning against the light. It's sinning against knowledge. It's not a sin of ignorance. It is a presumptuous sin. Take, for instance, the parable of the two sons. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to Jesus, the first. And then Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Jesus here in Matthew 21 is confronting the greater sin of the Pharisees in contrast to the lesser sin of the tax collectors and harlots. And yet the Pharisees thought themselves to be religious and righteous, and yet they were the ones with the plank in their eye, and the publicans and harlots were the ones with the splinter in their eye. In Romans chapter 2, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. Notice Paul does not pit the sins of stealing adultery and idolatry. He puts it in an equal context here. And the point was not the degree of stealing adultery and idolatry, but that they were dishonoring God by breaking the law in knowledge. It is their transgressing the law in knowledge that causes the name of God to be blasphemed and not the degree of their sin, because to whom much is given, much is required. What I'm saying is that we like to define our sins as splinters and other people's sins as logs or planks. But if we would consider our sins in the light of Scripture, we would confess that they are planks and not splinters. It's not as if we, American Christians, can claim ignorance any more than the first century Pharisees. 
If we were honest, we would confess, like Paul, that we are the chief of sinners because our sins are not just sins against the light of nature or the light of the law, but against the light of Christ. The writer of Hebrews declares in chapter 10 and verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Once again, Matthew Henry commented on our text by saying, Our own sins ought to appear greater to us than the same sins in others. That which charity teaches us to call but a splinter in our brother's eye. True repentance and godly sorrow will teach us to call a beam in our own. For the sins of others must be extenuated, but our own aggravated. When we get down to it, the question really becomes this. Who is sinning to the highest degree? He who sins against nature or he who sins against divine revelation? He who sins against common grace or he who sins against special grace? He who sins against the blood of man or he who sins against the blood of the covenant of Christ? He who sins in ignorance or he who sins in knowledge? In addition... The Christian is to be measured by what we do and not simply by what we do not do. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul commands Christians to walk after the flesh and then they would not fulfill the lust of the flesh. First, the way to fulfill the law by not doing what is prohibited is by doing what is prescribed. If you do not walk in the Spirit, you will fulfill the lust of the flesh. Second, the fruit of this doing, walking in the flesh, is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit includes crucifying the flesh, but a Christian is identified by walking in the Spirit, which manifests certain fruits. Today, we are like those whom Paul described to Timothy as having a form of godliness but denying its power. We are like the Pharisees. We have form but no reality. We profess to know God, but in works we deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Walking in the Spirit includes not doing that which is prohibited. But the real identification of the Spirit is the fulfilling of that which is prescribed. So I ask, who has the greater sin? Who is the one with the plank in their eye? Here's the thing. We categorize ourselves as those who have the splinter in our eye. When we are those who have the logs sticking out of our eye sockets, 
How can we assist those who have something in their eye when we cannot see? We can't. Not only are we useless in removing splinters in the eyes of our brothers, but we are also detrimental and cause additional damage by our blindness. Like the Pharisees, we condemn sinners in our hypocritical blindness and blind them even more. In addition, just like the Pharisees, we suppress the truth and hinder the kingdom of God, making our converts twofold childs, child, children of hell. And we wonder why we are weak and inept. We wonder why we can't see well enough to even remove splinters. Well, it's because we got a log in our eyes. Not only do we commit lesser degrees of lust, envy, and hatred in the light and knowledge of Christ, but we don't do the things that we're supposed to be doing. And although it has been said, and will be said again, and we can't say at this moment, but it will be said once again, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. One of the biggest sins, which is a sin against the body of Christ, is not fulfilling our covenantal duties and responsibilities in the visible church, the kingdom of Christ. We have been promised that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, the visible church. We have been told that all kingdoms will be shaken until only the kingdom of Christ remains. We have been told that the church is like leaven that will completely leaven the world. We are told that the church is like a mustard seed that will grow until it becomes the greatest of all herbs and becomes a tree. We have committed the greater sin. Yes, greater than the Sodomites greater than the fornicators, and even greater than the abortionists because we sin against the light, which is the greatest sin of all in condemning this world and sinners to eternal death. We have been called and transformed into the kingdom of Christ, the church, and yet we have despised our birthright. Jesus says of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 13 that it is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Until we give up everything for the kingdom of Christ, for the work of the church, to build and advance it throughout all of the earth, we are not going to see the restraint of sin and the fulfillment of righteousness in Mooresville, in Indiana, or anywhere else on earth. Who has the greater sin? We do. Jesus said in Luke 12, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom... 
For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Matthew Henry wrote, There are many that have beams in their own eyes and yet do not consider it. They are under the guilt and dominion of very great sins and yet are not aware of it, but justify themselves as if they needed no repentance nor reformation. It is as strange that a man can be in such a sinful, miserable condition and not be aware of it, as that a man should have a beam in his eye and not consider it. But the God of this world so artfully blinds their minds, that with notwithstanding, with great assurance they say, We see. When asked by the Pharisees, If he thought they were blind, Jesus responded, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore your sin remains. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. Has the word of God been spoken to you? Then you should see your sins as great. You should see your sin as a plank or a log in your eye. If you do not see your sins that way, it is because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, uh, you welcomed it as the word of men, but not in truth as the word of God, which effectively works in those who believe. All the things that we see coming upon us in America is because we have been hypocrites. We have not truly been living in the faith of Jesus Christ. May God grant us repentance and time for amendment of life and may his church be reformed back unto his will and his ways. Until next time, may God bless. Standing Firm is a podcast production of Holy Trinity Reformed Church in Canby, Indiana. For more information about this podcast or Holy Trinity Reformed Church, visit us online at reformedholytrinity.org.